Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of The Pig Edge, Chagas Pig Podcast with me, Amy Quinn, where we are bringing you the latest news, information and advice to keep Irish pig farmers up to date. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by pig producer and tillage farmer Roy Galley, a well-known figure in Irish pig farming. And in this episode, I talk to Roy about where he sees genetic improvement going, the biggest challenges facing the industry and his top pieces of advice. I first asked Roy to tell us a bit about his farming setup. I have a, a small farm by, I suppose, pig standards now. I, I have 180 sows, um, but that is, uh, you know, that is well below the 750 average pig farmer. But it's integrated with uh, cereal crops on the farm as well. So I grow all my own cereals uh, and buy in as well. Um, so that's uh, 180, 180 sows. Uh, we are a multiplier for a breeding company, Elite Sires. Um, and uh, so all the females are selected for breeding and sell to other farmers. Uh, although the demand for gilts is somewhat poor, if you like, because most people now have their gilts reared on farm. So I'm finding that, that the sale of gilts is probably not enough to uh, pay for the trouble of uh, having the whole herd with pure females because I have uh, all my all my females are pure and uh, so they're crossed with uh, the land race boar to give me an F1 cross um, so yeah and then we we dry all our own grain um, and we put that in store and that's where we're at at the moment uh, and the miller mix plant here which goes back uh, to a building that's over 200 years old. So the farm here was basically an ancient old estate, uh, which was split up for the Land Commission uh, in the 1930s. And my father bought a little central section of it, uh, which was one of the bits for, I think it was £70 an acre at the time. And uh, everyone said you were robbed. So uh, I don't think that's quite the case because we're still at it and enjoying it thoroughly. Uh, but unfortunately, now the next generation are not going to follow on after me. So that seems to be the same with a lot of farmers as well. Um, so that's the sort of farming setup that I have at the moment. And can you tell us a little bit about the history of the pig farm? Well, that goes back a long way. Um, I suppose my father, I have to blame for the history. Um, and he would have, be, he came from Scotland originally. And his great aunt had a farm down on the borders between Scotland and England. And they used to have show animals, so they had show pigs. But these were the sort of pigs that their udders would trail on the ground and they had uh, 10 inches of fat on them. Um, but he always had a, a sort of an interest in farming. Uh, he was a flour miller by trade. and uh, came across here to Ireland to install mill machinery into mills. Uh, liked Ireland so much after the Second World War because my poor family was decimated during the Second World War. Uh, and he decided to buy a farm. So he had some good friends in the rugby clubs above in Dublin and who gave him a hand. And he always reckoned that uh, the centre of an old estate was never built on bad land. And this one happened to come up for sale in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, he was in a lucky position uh, to be able to buy it. Uh, he had some money left to him by an aunt who had died uh, in the UK. So that's where the farm starts. So the history of the farm here, then he would have, you know, he had a bit of everything, like all all farmers in the 1950s and 60s. 
there it was a pig and there was a cow and there's a sheep and there was a goat and there was all, all the rest of it, chickens and hens and ducks. And uh, he was always what they call lucky with pigs, uh, as the expression used to go. And uh, he got his first sow from a lady up in Beliver uh, by, the la- by the name of Mrs. McGee. So the sow was called McGee. And uh, she farrowed in a field uh, just beside us here, what we call the island, which is a three-acre field. And she went to the far corner of it. She made her nest in the far corner and she had her piglets in it. And no one saw them for the first three weeks. And then she suddenly appeared with her entourage of piglets um, from the nest at some stage. She came for food. That was it. But the piglets stayed behind. Uh, So that was all au naturel, long tails, all the rest of it. Um, And of course, needless to say, over time, it's progressed from that. My father put in an 80 sow unit here. uh, And when I came home, uh, we traveled up uh, to 180 sows. Uh, I was away at college for for uh, um, all my education and then went to Saudi Arabia <clears throat> to do dairy farming out there and uh, came back then to farm in the 1970s. So we stuck and I was ha- very happy to stick with 180 sows. Didn't really have that sort of drive to go to um, a massive great pig piggery. Uh, quite happy to do a holistic uh, farm that um, that keeps me happy, able to, gives me holidays, um, gives me a bit of time with family because uh, work-life balance is also quite important too. So I never really had that drive to go for a massive size. So very happy doing my 180 sows um, uh, and doing my own millimix and uh, keeping the, the, the finances tight. And, and how would you say has the unit developed itself over, over time? The, the, the first sows, of course, would have, would have uh, farrowed in the corner um, and my father would have sat up on, on the deck chair for them to farrow. So when we put in uh, the first farrowing house and it's interesting because we're really turning full circle now so we had a a very specialized farrowing unit which had four uh, concrete crates and the sow we had farrowed in those concrete crates if you like they were they were quite tight but they were you know had piglets had a creep on both sides and uh, so she was restricted for the first uh, four or five days after farrowing and then she moved out into a loose pen, which was no slats, all fully, uh, fully concrete floor <clears throat> with a creep area at the back of it, uh, all straw bedded. Uh, so the sow had what we're now looking at trying to plan for today. So we had that in the 1970s and 60s. Um, now it was an awful lot of work because every sow had to get cleaned out every day. So there was a wheelbarrow and there was a, a, an hour job or a half an hour job to run down every pen, clean the sow out and make sure the piglets were happy. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, quite, quite a labor, a labor intensive job when you've got uh, straw and, uh, and sows in the pen. So that's what we did um, those days. So then the wieners then would have gone on to uh, a lot of solid floor and a little bit of slats, which are still working today. Um, and then we moved on. When I came home, I, I, I put in a farrowing unit, another farrowing unit, all crates, modern style. Um, uh, uh, wiener production for about two or three years and then built a fatting unit on. And uh, so it went, went from, from there onwards. So the fat, need to say fattening is all slatted, fully slatted. Uh, at the time, <clears throat> in the 1980s, I put in a computer wet mix feeder as well. So we really, really modernized ourselves. I think I was one of the early guys with a computer wet mix feeder, which came in in the early 80s and is still feeding pigs today. It's a, a, the original funky 
Now it's had a few revamps and it's had a few visits to the repair shop up in Dublin, but uh, it's still feeding pigs uh, nearly 40 years on. So uh, I suppose then once, I suppose one of the key things that, uh, the key drivers in the pig unit here was <clears throat> my relationship with my vet. And at that time it was Des Mills. And Des was part of the MOSFET uh, um, consortium in Mace. <clears throat> and Des was very much instrumental in moving me from a herd that had a lot of dysentery into a minimal disease herd. And I linked in with Blessington Farms up in Wicklow, who had these minimal disease pigs, uh, or PIC at the time. And I was able to get my first in-pig gilts served at a, a separate unit so they arrived in here after we did a full clean out. So basically we started one end of the farm, cleaned the whole place down. Every slat was lifted. Every slurry tank was, was washed out right down to the very last <clears throat> ounce of, 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 of muck at the bottom. Left for six weeks and then we got our sows in. So I did a depop repop in the mid, uh, in the early 80s. And believe it or not, to this day, I am still free of pneumonia because pneumonia is one of the things we, we want to get rid of. I've never seen dysentery needles to say ever since. But uh, it's very nice because my farm is inside uh, a lot of a lot of tillage ground, so I'm well isolated here. And isolation is the key, as we know with COVID. Um, and so I still have I'm free of of pneumonias, which is great. Uh, then once I moved to fattening, and then I said, well, let's go for breeding stock as well. So rather than getting bigger, I decided that it'd be better to go for well, as the old saying goes, an ounce of breeding is worth a ton of feeding. So um, I said I'd rather go, I'd be interested to go for genetics. So that's when we moved um, to, because PIC had a lot of political moves in it. And I was still linked into Blessington uh, for a long time. And that was PIA at the time. So I then, they, they, they disbanded and uh, joined up with Topigs. Topigs disappeared off to the UK uh, and left us high and dry here for a while. Uh, so I had no option but to look elsewhere, and then that's why I linked up with Elite Sires. Uh, and to this day, then, so we're doing um, multiplying for Elite Sires with all the um, prolificacy that goes with the Danish pigs, because that really is revolutionary um, to be able to produce um, 25 quite normal is, is, is the size of a litter now, as opposed to 10 to 12s. So that's really, um, it's a lot of extra management, but um, it certainly has revolutionized piggery, that's for sure. You mentioned you're a, a genetic multiplier. Where do you see pig genetic advancement going in the next 10 years? That's a big question. That's an interesting question as well, because the power of genomics is just quite extraordinary. Uh, I, I think in numbers born, we've gone further than we need to go. Um, now, my, my size, and there's no two ways about it, the pig on the sow, on the tit, is the best place to rear a pig. Uh, it's, the, it's the cheapest, it's the most uh, sustainable, everything else. Now, I know we can do lots with milk powder, and it does help a huge way, a huge amount as well using milk powder. Um, so I think we've probably gone as much as we can go with uh, prolificacy. Um, I say when you've got 14 teats on a sow, and if you increase it to 16 tits, well, it's still only two pigs and you're still producing 25. So the, 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 the genetic potential of the pig now, I suppose it's just going to keep on going. Uh, I would like to see the numbers come back somewhat, if that was possible, to pick uh, a, a more even sized litter 
of say 15, 16, to between, between 15 and 20 would be a very nice litter to have as opposed to 30. And I've had quite a few 30s uh, and you end up losing an awful lot of them because they're not fit to, to you know, to, to, to go, unfortunately. Um, so I suppose the, the one I would like to see, certainly with the Danish ones, is their milking ability. And I think that's something that's missing in the Danish uh, sow. Lots of, I suppose, every every different piece of genetics has different uh, traits. Uh, but I think ge- the genomic uh, revolution is upon us, and we will be using it to use that genomics to to increase traits that we wish to have in the pig herd, and that's going to be right across agriculture, which will help us. So that's where I see genetic moving. I think it's it's endless, endless what we're going to be able to do with genomics. As someone with a tillage and pig enterprise, do you think there's an opportunity for tillage and pig farmers to collaborate a bit more? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, I suppose the the relationship that um, Willie Murphy has with George Walsh in in Mullingar is a, is a classic example, where the two of them are operating in whack together, um, and all the, the grain goes into the um, goes into the mill. And the middle feeds the pigs, so there's a relationship there. So I do actually think yes, and I, I would like to have more interaction with the Grain Committee um, in IFA uh, and see if we can manage to uh, do more farm direct to, uh, to to pig farm sales, so that we can. And, and price is easy set nowadays; it's all on computer, um, and you, you can know where you are at any stage. You can either buy spot or you can forward buy. Um, so there's lots of ways that, 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 that pig farmers should be able to interact with, with grain farmers, um, providing, of course, that the grain that they're going to buy is of adequate quality. And that is really important. So that if there is a relationship going to be built up between uh, pig farmer and cereal farmer, the quality of the grain is, of course, of paramount importance. You're also the current chair of the IFA Pigs Committee. Can you tell me a little bit about this role and what it involves, really? When you say yes to something, uh, you never quite know what you're going to land yourself in, are you? Um, I have to say my predecessor, Tom Hogan, was brilliant. Uh, and uh, I certainly got a running committee, which was which was tipping away and uh, had good relationships with uh, everybody that includes factories. So I suppose as Pigs Chairman, you it's, it's all been done through COVID. So you don't actually, it's, it hasn't been a real chairmanship as yet, but where it has, but it hasn't, if you like. So I found personally that it's been a firefighting job, that uh, I spend too much time doing what I have to do rather than what I would like to do or what I want to do. Um, so we've been dealing with uh, things like uh, environmental uh, and the EPA. We've been dealing with uh, the TAM, new TAMS regulations, which are uh, trying to bring to bring us to a stage where the welfare and, and removal of antibiotics uh, from the piggeries, um, and of course the bugbear of uh, intact tails has consumed a considerable amount of time. Uh, I think the penny has dropped eventually that this is something that is not possible in Irish farms, but it's taken an awful lot of persuasion um, for, for this to actually realise that it, it is not possible yet. And we've got a long way to go before we start to rear pigs and intact tails. Um, but this is the sort of stuff you're dealing with. So basically, uh, it's, it's government bodies 
uh, issuing various different decrees and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do something else. Um, and then you have to firefight it to get some sanity into it. Uh, and that's what I found has spent, I, I've been doing most of my time spending doing that. So I've also got to communicate with my, my, my members and I'm doing that through WhatsApp uh, and through emails to, to, to the pig farmers. So we haven't had too many face-to-face -face meetings. We've had no face-to-face -face meeting. Everything's been on Zoom. So it's a little difficult uh, when you don't actually get up in front and have a chat and be able to do that interaction after the meeting and roundabout and chat. Um, it's, it's all done on, on a Zoom, which is not so easy just to have the, 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 the easy chat where you, where you start to interact. But uh, there's, so there's lots of things I would like to do. Yeah, lots of things I'd like to do. Uh, the DNA one is is working away in the background. The DNA has been a fantastic uh, asset, and that would be a predecessor of mine, Timmy Cullinan, now president of the IFA. Uh, his, it was his baby, and he set it up. So DNA is something that we need to do a bit more work with because it's real. So uh, the food sector at the moment is, um, should we say, the, the catering trade is about 50% compliant. Whereas the retail trade, that's all the Lidl's and the Aldi's and the, the, the Dunn's and the Tesco's, they're all nearly 98% compliant. So when they say it's Irish and their own stuff is all Irish, uh, which is great. And it all carries the Bob Beer Quality Assurance logo. But the food sector has a long way to go. And I've got some chains who have zero compliance and you've got other chains who are 100% compliant. So there's work to do there. And maybe we could move into these, the uh, government procurement uh, division as well. So that's another area I'd like to do. Um, but it's hard to get time to do everything. So uh, I think that's an area that's the prisons and the uh, hospitals and the government and schools uh, and uh, all that sort of stuff uh, that needs to be looked at just to make sure they are using Irish. Because I know uh, if things are cheap in there and they tend to operate around whatever cheapest, that's what we're going to buy. So it's an area that I just want to make sure that they are using Irish. Um, but it's, again, it involves you know, time and effort and, and meeting people. What do you think the biggest future challenges are that are facing the industry? It's certainly three or four major challenges. Um, and maybe we'll deal, deal with them one at, one at a time. I think the biggest one is the threat of African swine fever, which is uh, on the continent in Germany at the moment. Um, it's in uh, just moved into a commercial herd in Germany, so this poses uh, serious implications that it's moving um, <clears throat> out of the wild boars in the forests. So, if we, God forbid, were to have even a single case of African swine fever on this island, uh, it would be uh, it'd be curtains for the Irish pig industry because our export markets would disappear overnight. And uh, we are a major exporting nation for pig meat. We certainly can't consume everything we produce on the island. So this is uh, down to biosecurity. Now, um, I'm a sort of a long proponent that we need in this country a all-island biosecure zone. And we need to be treated as an island. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as we all know, we have two parts of this island. And uh, we've seen what's happened with Brexit and that, that we can't get agreement on where the border should be for various things. So I'm afraid uh, this aspiration of having an all-island biosecure zone is equally um, eluding. We can't, we can't seem to be able to get to that place yet. But we're, we, we, we you know, never lose up hope. So um, I suppose 
the security of it is is down to all of us. Um, and the pig farms themselves, uh, thanks to the department as well, I have to give them credit where credit is due, have a sort of um, biosecurity uh, audit going on at the moment, which we need to keep in touch with. So most pig farms are very well aware of the threat of African swine fever and have biosecurity, certainly external biosecurity is, is, is uh, very much to the fore on nearly every pig farm that I know about. But it doesn't necessarily need to be a pig farm where this African swine fever comes in. It would more than likely be a single pig somewhere or a couple of pigs somewhere else on one of the little hobby pigs or they, or God forbid, we have it out in the, um, in the wild boar population that seems to be uh, appearing in various locations around the country. So this we see as the one number one major threat and major concern uh, of Irish pig farmers um, to the, the, the movement of African swine fever, which can come in terribly easily on a piece of meat or a sandwich or some piece of meat somebody's brought in the luggage from one of the countries that has it. Uh, I know, for example, that I was out in Romania a couple of years ago uh, on a hiking trip with a bunch of kids and we were hiking all over the mountains there and there was wild boar everywhere they were all over the place and uh, so when i came back in um i did thoroughly disinfect my boots uh, when i came back but there was very little sign at the airport and there was certainly nothing on the plane coming back from romania to remind us that we were coming from an african swine fever zone and to report to the department of agriculture when we arrived um, and this is the sort of security, biosecurity that we do need in this country. From those countries that are um, African swine fever positive, we need to have a constant reminder on those traveling into the country from these countries that there is a, a risk from them to our island's biosecurity. So let's take that one to one side. Um, the next one uh, I see as a sort of, um, as, a, as a, a major challenge uh, is, the, is uh, antimicrobials. So uh, we've now got to move, and very rightly so, too, away from using antimicrobials on the farms uh, because of the existence now of MRSA. <clears throat> um, as, a, as a little personal story, my poor father was involved in World War II and in, uh, in North Africa, where he happened to be in hospital um, with some shrapnel wounds, he saw with his own two eyes, the miracle that was penicillin, curing men coming in from the front with injuries heretofore would have killed them and they were suddenly recovering. Uh, and that was thanks to antibiotics and penicillin in particular. Uh, two generations on, and that's my father and me, and we are now at an age where <clears throat> we have diseases that we cannot cure or we are on the last um, antibiotic um, that is available to cure diseases. So it is a very serious and a, and a, and a, and a very serious threat to, um, to our longevity, if you like. So I thoroughly understand uh, the whole drive behind reducing the amount of certainly critical antibiotics on farms. And that is most important that we do this. Um, so we're, we're, you know, I would encourage all farmers to fill out their uh, antimicrobial use on the department website because we can't, Actually, if you don't measure something, you can't uh, be able to say how good we are and how well we've done. So we need to know uh, how we are at the moment, and then we need to track using less of it. 
so that's all happening. I think uh, a lot of that's coming in at the end of January next year, and that will be an interesting move forward. We do, of course, have to take the welfare of our pigs into, uh, into account, and it's terribly important that we do have some antimicrobials on farm so that we can uh, use these to uh, look after sick animals as they get sick. But that will be on an individual basis uh, rather than uh, through the feed or through the water, um, which is, you know, that, that will be necessary maybe for certain pens of pigs, but uh, that will all be on the vet's um, uh, advice uh, to the farmers. So that's, that's number two. The next one, we've got to do, uh, have pigs with minimal emissions. <clears throat> and there's another challenge because uh, I don't know too many pigs that uh, don't smell. Um, but we've now got cases where smells emanating from piggeries are resulting in court cases and requests to go for mediation uh, to try and reduce the amount of smells coming out of piggeries uh, just because of the location. Uh, I happened to be on one the other day uh, beside the Bog of Allen, I couldn't get a better place to build a piggery because there was, um, I don't know how many thousands of acres uh, to the windward side of it. So there was nobody going to com be complaining about that piggery. Unfortunately, not, they're not all like that. And some are near and close to um, people where people live or people have moved out and they don't like the smell and they're now um, <clears throat> issuing complaints to county councils. So this is another one. Um, both that's for smells but then of course we've got ammonia emissions as well so we've got to reduce that for climate change uh, because uh, we, we are um, we are a greenhouse gas uh, producer in, in ammonia and that has to be done too <clears throat> so housing is going to change slurry storage is going to change uh, these are challenges we're now in an era where we're being the, 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 the dynamics of the pig industry are being driven by NGOs in Europe and um, lobbies within countries, um, which are uh, set on, on, on improving the welfare, which is absolutely of paramount importance. I'm very much behind the, the welfare, if you like, improvement. But there is a considerable cost involved with basically revamping the uh internal structures that are present on every farm in ireland uh, and what i've seen of the sort of design of pens that and piggeries that is um uh, look they're looking to become the norm on pig farms there needs now to be a link up between the consumer and the pig farm and some sort of stream of finances because as i said yesterday to, to one person that says we will do anything we possibly can as long as we're able to do it economically. If it's not an economic feasibility and some of the building, we're talking of millions here now that needs to be invested, that, that they want invested in piggeries. And at current prices that we're on at the moment uh, and with grain going up, uh, as we speak, pig price coming down, in 1986, I was paid 50 pence a pound for my pigs. If you relate that to today's money from 50 pence a pound to euros per kilo, it works out at 140 cent a kilo. Uh, Belgium this week is on 120 cent a kilo. We're on 160 cent a kilo. So there's not too much uh, between the two of us. And if we were to even it out, we're heading in that direction to being on exactly the same price 
as I got in the mid 1980s. And I don't need to tell everybody where the other costs have gone right throughout it. So we've been running faster and faster and faster and faster to stand exactly still. They're, they're, they're big challenges and they're big challenges that cost a lot of money. So the final hurdle that we have is actually being able to uh, recoup some of these uh, costs, costs that are going to be necessary on farms from the marketplace. And how we do this, I have yet to solve because at the moment we are paid by on a supply and demand situation. And unfortunately, at the side of it, we have while supply and demand works great uh, for the majority of times when there are uh, uh, side issues that are being thrown at the primary producer, which is us. We have no recourse to go to the marketplace to say we have to comply with this. It's costing this. And therefore, we're going to have to put up our price of our pigs. That is just not the way it works at the moment. So I see this as the biggest challenge, you know, at the end of it, is how we can manage to recoup or how the farmer is going to be reimbursed for measures that he is being asked to take um, to um, make sure that our pigs are reared with the utmost welfare in mind, using the least amount of, um, of antibiotics and uh, with the least amount of ammonia emissions coming from the pig units. And that, I think, is our biggest challenge. And so what was the best piece of business advice you've been given along the way that's really stuck with you? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a, 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 not a, it's an interesting one because there's, there's two lessons I've been learned. I, I was learned earlier on. And it was the honour, both of them happened to be on a, a pig course, or not a pig course, a post-grad course in England at the Y College of Agriculture where they drew together a three-week residential course and put a bundle of, of people. There was a couple of bankers. There was a couple of state agents. There were some very large UK farmers. There was Paddy Lee, that's me, from Ireland. There was a Dutch and a Dane and a French. A very interesting group of people. And we've actually stayed in touch ever since. And we meet up once every two years to go and visit farms. And those of us that are left alive, because unfortunately some have died since then. But anyhow, on the course, there was this old professor stood up and he looked at us and he says, it was all to do with employment. Uh, and he says, the fellow I'm going to employ, he says, will have done psychology, sociology and politics. And I looked at the fellow beside me and I said, good grief, how are we meant to farm with a psychologist or a sociologist or a politician? Uh, that just, uh, this fellow's off the wall. Uh, but he went on to explain that uh, anybody can be a farmer. But what they can't do is, or what we're not very good at, is managing people. And if you have got somebody who's done a bit of psychology, he'll understand how the human works. If he's got sociology, uh, he will understand how people work together. And if he's a politician, a bit of politics in him, he'll be able to manipulate them to get them to do what he wants them to do. But the, the moral of the story was all around people management and people skills and looking to get the best out of people and how you encourage people. And, uh, and, and, and I thought that was a, a huge lesson to learn because all of us and everything we do revolves around people. And if we're good with people, we'll get the best out of them and our business will thrive. So that was the first piece of good advice. Uh, and the second one then was a, core, a, a thing we did. We did a class one evening and we had to battle against the computer. Now, this was the early days of computers. And uh, we were at to do a farm plan. And the farm plan, the, our little group was working away at we discovered that every time we looked for advice, they used to double our profits. Now, we weren't too sure if we were really on the right nuts or not, but 
uh, we, we kept on looking for advice and they kept on doubling our profits. So we thought, right, lads, we're, we're on a winner here. Uh, and we, we won the competition. Um, and the, the object of, the, of this lesson was that you should always get as much advice as you possibly can for any project or whatever you're going to do. You don't need to take it all. You don't need to apply it or any of that, but just get it. And if you can get the advice and the help of other people and other bits of expertise when you make decisions, you'll never go too far wrong. Um, uh, because uh, everyone blames everybody else when things go wrong. But actually, the blame must rest with you because you took the decision. But the important thing is that if you can get a, a, a decision that's based on good advice, then that is worth a million dollars. And so is there any other advice that you would give to any big producer out there right now? Pig meat is a staple part of the uh, global diet. So pig meat will and must always be profitable in one shape, form or, or another. So I would encourage anybody to stick at it because if you do the job well, uh, and, and are prudent with your financial management and attention to detail uh, with your pigs and your staff, um, you should be able to run and always be able to run um, a piggery that will leave you uh, some profit at the end of the day. But the margins are very tight, that's for sure. Um, but there are opportunities, I think, um, for if you do the job really well, and everybody who's got passion in the job um, will always make a good farmer, is, is the way I look at it. So it's, a, it's, it's really down to, to, to your own passion. And if you've got that passion and drive, um, and uh, th there will be profits left for pig farmers forever, because we can't do without pigs to feed our population unless they all go vegan or vegetarian, which I don't think is going to happen. Thanks very much, Roy, for joining us. That was really interesting. It's, that's my pleasure, Amy. Uh, it, it's, it's always good just to be able to relate one, one's own little piece of history uh, on this planet. Uh, and everybody has their own little piece of history. Uh, so it's my, my pleasure to share it with you. And uh, long may the pig industry be profitable uh, in, 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 times, in times to come. That's it for this episode of The Pig Edge. And many thanks to Roy for joining me on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more farming information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Amy Quinn. Thanks for listening.